when our kids were younger, uh, we had a certain rhythm in our life. It was, uh, it, it was this rhythm that was a little different. Our kids were heavily involved in youth sports. In fact, uh, specifically, uh, our sport of choice was soccer. And so it seemed like uh, we kind of had uh, these bookends to our lives. There were these events that took place on the weekend. They were highly anticipated. They were cherished. They were talked about. They were called games. And we found ourselves going from weekend to weekend uh, to these games. And we would refer back to them often after the game took place. There would be questions like, Dad, do you remember? Did you see? Did you remember when I scored that goal? And I'm like, yeah, I was, I was right there. It was me cheering you on. That was my voice yelling. Sure, I do remember. Do you, do you remember when I made that pass? How about when I made that move and I made that guy miss? And I had one kid that was a keeper, so he's always like, did you remember when I blocked that shot? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I totally remember those moments. We would look forward then to the next weekend games. Uh, these were the moments that we looked forward to with anticipation. Uh, they would ask questions like, who do we play this weekend? Uh, oh, we're going to Miami. When do we leave for Miami? Uh, what place will we be in if we win? Do you think we'll even win? You know, those were the questions. And so there were kind of these bookends to the week. We would look back and then we would look forward. But then there was a space in between the bookends, right? Uh, this quiet space. Uh, per perhaps your family was a little different. Perhaps it wasn't sports, it wasn't soccer, maybe it was band. Uh, maybe it was um, acting, whatever. Maybe it was the concert or the competition or the football game that came up or the parade. These bookends kind of to life, this rhythm that took place week in and week out. And although these moments were celebrated, these moments were anticipated, the real work took place in the quieter moments in between the bookends. These were the days where there were no games. These were the days where... Perhaps there was practice or rehearsal. Yeah, those were important, but the ones that actually excelled in the sport or in the music or in the activity, they were beyond practice or rehearsal. Uh, they took time, uh, their own time, their quiet time, the hours of dedications, the moments that no one else saw where they were working on their craft. Uh, where they were in the driveway kicking the ball against the garage door, uh, where they were in their room working with their musical instrument. Uh, that, that work during the week pointed towards that bookend in anticipation of the game that was to come. That was like the prize that they were looking forward to. Uh, the Christian life is similar to that. Uh, there are a couple of bookends that we like to talk about frequently and honestly, uh, rightly so. And in fact, in this chapter in Philippians that we are studying, Paul mentions both of these bookends in chapter 3. Now, if you read Mark's email that came out this week, uh, he reminded you of the first bookend that we see in this chapter. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3 and look at verse 8. It says this, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, I tried my best to please God. I tried to live rightly, but the standard was perfection. And Paul's saying he can't attain perfection. In fact, right before these verses, he kind of lists out his pedigree. 
Uh, right? He was a Jew of Jews. He worked really hard. He had zeal. Uh, he tried to follow the law. But now he looks at those things and he goes, man, those were rubbish. They didn't match up to the standard that God had, had for me. And I recognize that those in themselves, they were worthless. And then he moves to verse 9. And he says this about Christ. And being found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He's being put into the righteousness of God. It's this incredible deal. We take our works, we take our efforts, we take our inability to get there, to be per perfect, and we say, listen, I'd like to trade this in. And we get Christ's righteousness. We call this the justification moment of salvation. In fact, if you've come to know Jesus as your Savior, you could probably look back on when that happened for you. And perhaps you look back and you remember and you think about that moment where you placed your faith and, and trust in Christ and where you realize you weren't good enough on your own, but that Christ went to the cross on your behalf. And you look back at that moment with awe and wonder and gratitude, and rightly so. Because we've been justified, we've had our sin removed from us. When God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees Christ's righteousness instead. It's an incredible deal. This is the righteousness that comes from God and it depends on faith. That's one of the bookends. But there's another bookend in this salvation process. Uh, the story's not over when we come to know Jesus as our Savior. There's this one day portion of the story that is to come. And we see it here in our passage this morning in, in verse 20. It says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Okay, let's just hold there for a second. That's just such a great thought. Especially as, okay, as I've gotten older, that's just such a great thought. He will transform our lowly bodies by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And so Paul points us to Christ's return. Now, currently we live with this humble reminder of our current condition. I played pickleball Friday night for about an hour and a half with some friends. And then I sat down on a couch for about an hour. And when I went to get back up, I realized I had all these muscles I hadn't been using for a long time. And I realized I was reminded of my age, right? In that moment, getting up from the couch. And it was one of those that was really comfortable. That, but then you went and you're like, I made a horrible decision, right? When you try and get up, the bodies break down. So I talked to our college and career students and they're like, what? I'm like, it's coming. Don't worry. It's coming. Christ will transform these bodies. They'll be made in the likeness of his. Now this isn't some far off hope. You might think it's far off hope, but it isn't some far off hope. In fact, the language here is written like a guarantee, like it's already, ha he's so sure of it, he's writing it like it's already going to happen. 
But how can we know? How can we be sure that this is what we have to look forward to? Well, he says the power of Christ, right? Uh, This is applied and this is uh, invincible. It's the power that underwrites this promise, this guarantee of his coming again. There's an account in Matthew chapter 8 where the disciples were fishing with Jesus and then Jesus fell asleep in the boat and they were out on the Sea of Galilee and the scripture says a storm blew up and that the, the fishermen, just think about that, the guys who spend their lives in the boat were scared. They were like, oh my goodness. So that's got to be some kind of storm, right? I mean, that's just not like me who barely goes out on a boat and hits a storm and like, whoa. That's like someone who knows what they're doing out on a boat and the storm hits and they're like, whoa. That's when you kind of get freaked out. And they looked at Jesus and he's asleep and he's like, how are you asleep? Like, don't you care about us? What is happening here? And they wake him up and his answer to them is great. They're like, do you not have little faith? He stands up and he says, be still. And scripture says the wind and the waves were still. And the disciples, these fishermen, looked up and they're just thinking to themselves and they're saying to themselves, who is this that the winds and the waves obey him? Who has this kind of power? Jesus. It's by that power that we cling to this promise. We call this glorification. This uh, is the glorification part of salvation. And so here are the bookends of salvation. Justification and glorification. We see them in chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, and then 20 and 21. And now we come to the heart of our passage right here in the middle. There's this other process that Paul is going to talk about. Paul is going to talk about this third element of salvation Uh, What happens in between the space of these bookends? We call this sanctification. Or or being set apart, being called out. Uh, What he's talking about here is being conformed to the image of Christ. Look at verse 12. One of the most comforting words in scripture. He says this, Not that I have already attained this, or am already perfect, But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Uh, What's he talking about? What's he trying to obtain? Well, actually what he's trying to obtain was talked about last week in verse 10. Uh, He basically says that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, that I might share in his sufferings, that I might become like him even unto death. He's talking about really grabbing a hold of Jesus as Jesus has grabbed a hold of you. Uh, You've been grabbed by grace. This is almost like a military term, like go, grab it, get it. It's pursue, it is seize, it's take hold of Jesus like he's taken hold of you. I press to make it my own. I grab a hold of him, he's saying. What he's really talking about here is obedience. Obedience. And the question becomes, am I living like Jesus would want me to live? Sometimes we come to God's guidance, God's laws, God's rules that we read in Scripture, and we see them as restrictive instead of freeing. Why does he warn me about where I can go, what I can do, what I shouldn't do? Why can't I do whatever I want to do? I want to do what I want to do. 
I would submit to you that God's restrictions provide and protect us. Uh, They lay out this incredible foundation for living. Uh, We used to live in Dallas, and uh, the driveways in Dallas, uh, this took some getting used to for me, but the driveways in Dallas were on the back side of the house. And so if you came to the front side where that red X is, that's the front lawn, you couldn't get into your driveway that way. They were around back. And so you had to use an alley to get into your house and park your car in the garage. And so these alleys were hard to see. You drive through them, and you're kind of impatient, maybe getting home, and sometimes people are, I've heard. And so they, uh, they're, they're moving home fast, and sometimes they go too fast in the alleyway. And so the alleyway can be actually a pretty dangerous place. If, if you can't really see and you're going even 20 miles an hour or 25, 30 miles an hour, uh, it's hard to put on the brakes at the right time as you want to go home. Now, one of my children was a runner. And, and by that, I mean he didn't do trek. It's just that when he was younger and we set him down, he would just take off running. Now, I don't want to embarrass him or call him out, but uh, I do have a picture of him when he was younger. (laughs) Now, despite this photo, he was a pretty joyful kid, and he loved to run uh, and explore. In fact, this was a pretty typical scene when we took him anywhere. He would take off running, and we would be behind him trying to catch up. Now, he was way opposite of the other son, but... But, dads, if you were to build a house in Dallas and you knew you had an alleyway, what is the first thing you would put in your backyard if you had children? A fence. Exactly. A fence. Why? Why would you do that? Well, you want your kids to enjoy the backyard. You want your kids to have fun in the backyard, to uh, seize the backyard and and, and enjoy it for all of its worth, and to jump in the backyard and and to love the backyard, right? But at the same time, you want them to be safe in the backyard. You want your kids to enjoy the boundary and yet have freedom in the boundary. Because as a dad, you know that fence provides for them. And it protects them. But the truth is, a a young child doesn't know, doesn't really understand fully what happens when they see a run into a car going 20, 30 miles an hour. They don't fully comprehend that in that moment. And so you make a boundary for them to keep them. They don't understand the destruction that it causes. They also don't understand the power of the fence. But yet they need childlike faith to stay in the fence. You guys have something, we have something similar here, right? If you have a pool in the backyard and you have young kids, you probably put that fence up. I'm sure some grandparents, the fence had been long gone. You're like, oh, now I got grandkids. Fence goes back up, right? Same kind of thing. So that you can, they can enjoy. Go back to verse 12. I love what Paul says here. He says, I'm not perfect. I haven't obtained this yet. I'm a work in progress, is what he basically says. Uh, If anyone, if you think anyone would have killed it, it would have been Paul. Here he was, a Hebrew of Hebrews, from the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee uh, with zeal. And here's what he's saying. I have this goal. I have this desire. I, I have this drive. I want to be like Jesus. Because sometimes 
I stumble. I fall. I mess up. I, I don't know if I've read a more relatable verse recently. But I was reading that this week and I was like, yes. Sometimes I stumble. I fall. I choose poorly. Sometimes it's a struggle. I'm a work in progress, Paul says. In fact, he says this in some of his other letters. In Romans, he says it this way. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. So what's maturity if it's not perfection? Well, I would submit to you that it's becoming more aware of your sin, uh, quicker to confess, quicker to move away from it, quicker to move towards Jesus, quicker to put your eyes back on him, quicker to press on. This verse also kind of gives us a hint of how we interact with each other. Think about it. If Paul's not perfect 20 years in of practicing Christianity, why should I expect my brother or sister to be perfect? I mean, if Paul, who wrote a good portion of the New Testament, says, I struggle sometimes, I make mistakes sometimes, why would I demand perfection from someone else? We have the freedom to deal with each other in grace. But it also kind of brings this other thought. What do I do when someone confronts me with my sin? Do I become defensive? Do I point towards, like, oh, why are you talking to me? Have you seen this person over here? Like, you should, you should probably go talk to that, do that. Or maybe you try and we try and justify. Oh, that's just the way I am. That's, oh, that's just the way my family was. Oh, if you knew the whole story, you knew why I was doing this. And so the question becomes, how do I pursue Jesus? How do I grab a hold of him? Even when we struggle. Even when perfection isn't going to happen. Well, Paul's going to give us some incredible, beautiful wisdom here on how to live the Christian life. Verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead. Paul just repeats this idea of not being perfect, and then he gives us kind of these two action steps towards growth, two action steps towards the bookends, the the struggle in the middle of of the bookends. He says, forget the past. Look to the future. Let's look at these two steps. What does Paul mean when he says, forget the past? He's not saying... Uh, Just ignore the past. He's not saying uh, ignore your present sin. He's not saying, okay, do what you want right now and then tomorrow you can just totally forget about it. He's not giving us license to do whatever we want to do. Uh, He's saying sin, in fact, he would tell other places, sin actually needs to be brought into the light. Uh, Sin needs to be dealt with. There's a process for uh, making things right. When we've sinned against our brother or sister, there's a process for restoring the relationship. There's a direction to go and take care of those things. And so that's not really what he's saying. What he's saying is this. No longer, you you no longer have to live according to your sin. It no longer...
finds you. You're not defined by your worst day. The truth is we all probably formerly struggled with something and that is not our identity anymore. And Paul's saying don't claim that as your identity. Now it's time to move forward. It's time to put that down and turn and focus in on Jesus and go forward. Forget what lies behind you and move forward. The second instruction was to look to the future. In other words, get your eyes back on Jesus. Get your eyes on what is ahead. There's an a old movie in the 80s called Chariots of Fire. Some of you are singing the song right now. Okay. So Chariots of Fire, and it portrays this one race that took place in, 19, in July of 1923. Uh, a, a runner, uh, Eric Liddell, was uh, from Scotland. And the movie portrays him running against France, but I think the actual uh, meet was against England and Ireland, but nonetheless. It was the 440, and it was one of the last uh, events of the day in a hotly contested track meet. And he was the favorite, the heavily favorite to win. And what happened is, as he took off, there was either a stumble or a push. Next thing you know, he's on the ground. And as he's watching these runners go by, there's a there's second of hesitation. Now, if you fell in that moment, and I know me, if I fell in that moment, I'd probably be like, I can't believe that guy pushed me. I can't believe that guy did that to me. Or, I can't believe I stumbled over my own two feet. I've been training for this thing the whole time, and I can't believe I wasn't able to do this. But he doesn't do that. His quick reaction is, I'm going to forget what just happened. And he got up and he started running again. Now, when he started running, he was about 20 uh, yards behind everyone else. And the story goes, uh, it's portrayed in in the movie, uh, the story goes, he ended up winning the race. And you see him run in the movie with just, just, he's focused on what's ahead. He's not stuck in that moment He's not thinking as he runs, I can't believe I fell there. I can't believe that happened. All he's doing is his eyes are on the prize. His eyes are on the goal. And so when we look at these bookmarks or these bookends, we have that justification. And then we're struggling in the middle of it. And Paul's saying, keep your eyes on the prize. This is where we're going. This is where we're headed. Yes, you may fall. Yes, you're not going to be perfect. Yes, we're going to struggle. But get back up and turn and press on and move towards the prize is what Paul is saying here. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Paul pressed on with his life in anticipation of the prize of being with Christ and knowing Christ in heaven. The future goal of winning the prize captured Paul's attention. Just real quick, just in your own heart, what'd you walk in here with? What was the thing that you're sitting here and you're like, I'm just, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe this happened in my life. I can't believe I've done this again. It's not who you are. Paul says, put that down and turn back towards Jesus. Look towards him and focus and run towards him. Forgetting what lies behind, Paul is straining towards what's ahead in order to know Christ. He says this, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if 
Uh, and if anything you think otherwise, or if you think otherwise, God will reveal that. Uh, in other words, if you're not thinking this way, start thinking this way. That's what he says. He's like, okay, what I just said, if that's not your mindset, let's start making it your mindset. Let's start thinking this way. Let's start uh, enjoying this way. Uh, you might say, I want to have joy in my daily life. This whole series has been about joy. Uh, and you, Paul would say, you need to move towards maturity in your thinking. Remember, Paul's writing this from prison. And yet the whole theme of this book is on joy. Over and over, Paul has said in this book, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. What he doesn't say is rejoice in your circumstance. Rejoice in what's happening right now in your life. Because if that were the case, we'd be in trouble. Because life is full of ups and downs. You can't take joy from circumstances because even if things are going well, you know somewhere around the corner the winds might change. Something might come, right? You, it's hard to take joy just in, from circumstances. It's this up and down roller coaster. In fact, uh, we've been reading with College and Career Ecclesiastes, and we got to chapter 3, and we walked through, you know, there's a season for everything, and a time to be born, a time to die. And you walk through these extreme emotions, and you're like, I have no control over these things. They're going to happen. They're going to come my way. They're going to be possible. And Paul's saying, that's not where your joy is. Your joy is looking towards Jesus. Our joy is found in Jesus. Are we being conformed to his image? Are we forgetting the past and moving to running towards the future with him? Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Again, the way of speaking here in the Greek language is even though it has not occurred, you're so certain that it will occur, you speak as though it's already happened. He's saying, I know where I'm going. It's a done deal. I've attained this. Jesus has given me this. Let's hold fast to that fact and let's keep that in mind as we move. 17, he says, brothers, join me in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Now, what's that telling us? Well, the Christian life is meant to be done together in relationship. Uh, we learn by watching others. You might sit here thinking, well, I don't know if I'm such a great model. <laughs> Paul's already said he's not perfect. So this is a mature believer saying to a younger or newer follower, watch me as I follow Christ. We call this discipleship. Here's one of the beauties, too, of putting down the past, right? How do we know we're able to kind of fully put down the past? Uh, in discipleship, if you're able to use that past as a blessing to someone else, uh, that's how you know you've released it. If you're like, listen, I see you struggling with this. I did too. Let me, let me walk you through how Jesus freed me of that. Let me walk with you in that. Who in your life is your example that you follow? Who in your life can you look to and say, man, I know they're not perfect, but I see the marks of maturity of Christ in their lives. Uh, Paul gives them a warning then about the people around them. Uh, those who have walked away from the faith. Take a look here. Verse 18. 
Uh, many of whom I often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Uh, their end is destruction. Uh, their God is in their belly. Their glory in their shame. And with their mind set on earthly things. Uh, the effect of these four descriptions that he just gave us is to show the enemies of the cross have, in Philippi have kind of come full circle. They've abandoned the pursuit of Christ. Their minds are set on the same things they were uh, pre-Christian. Uh, <clears throat> their lifestyle really shows their belief. The way in which they live shows their belief. Paul's saying, be careful not to walk as the culture walks. Don't call evil good, but rather keep your focus on Jesus. Why? Because verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't settle for what the culture offers. Uh, you, you could probably uh, look on your phone right now and look at any news site, and you can see an example of our culture calling evil progress. Uh, in the Roman Empire, uh, Caesar Augustus was uh, claimed to be the savior of the world yeah, because he had restored order and peace not only to Italy but all throughout the providence and regions that were underneath their sovereign rule. And so the citizens of Philippi were considered Roman citizens because of their part in helping him with this. And they were very proud of this status. Uh, they were proud of the favor and the benefits that they received from the emperor. Uh, patriotism had put pressure on the Christians in Philippi. And Paul is reminding them, and it's so great, he uses Caesar's title here. But he applies it to Christ. And he says this, your hope for the future is not fixed to Caesar. Your hope in the future is not fixed to Caesar. Because Caesar is just the Savior and Lord of the Roman Empire, but Jesus is the Savior of the world. Your hope is fixed on Jesus. Last weekend, Nicole and I went up to Washington, D.C., uh, we went to visit that running son uh, who's now older and has an internship up there. Uh, as we explored the capital together, we hit all sorts of monuments and museums. Uh, it had a blast. Our last stop, we found ourselves at the National Portrait Gallery. Uh, I got to be honest with you, the portrait gallery, not my cup of tea. Uh, I found, and, and uh, not my son's or my wife's either, but we found our way to the second floor, and uh, this one display on the second floor was kind of the highlight for us on the whole trip. Uh, it was an exhibit called The American Presidents. I don't know if you've been up to the Smithsonian, if you've seen uh, this exhibit, but it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, it's a complete collection of all the presidential portraits. Uh, you start with uh, President Washington, and then you wander through the portraits. It goes in order. Uh, they put like a one, a two, a three, so you know who's who. Uh, they name them. They say a little thing about them. Uh, but you get to wander through the portraits. Uh, you find yourself saying a couple times and looking at people and going, who's that guy? All right? And you're like, oh, yeah, I, I remember that. I remember. Oh, totally knew that was him. Sure. Yeah, got that. 
Now, the largest crowd of the day that I went there were around the last five or six modern-day presidents, which I found interesting. Uh, there was a, a, a weird buzz kind of in the air that you could almost taste. People were whispering. You could hear people say, ah, oh, I miss that guy, or I could not stand that one. Some were respectful, and some you could easily tell their, well, most, you could easily tell their party affiliation by what they were saying. But they were looking to their guy or their guys as the Savior. Now, I wandered back through the older ones. Uh, you know, the ones that uh, weren't like the famous guys, they were in between the famous guys, the ones that you needed to look at the plaque to figure out who they were. And I wondered if that exhibit had existed in their day, if the conversations would have been similar. Oh, I miss that guy. Oh, that guy would, that guy's the savior. That guy, oh, that guy was the best president. We flew home that night and I pulled up my laptop because I knew I was preaching this weekend and I pulled up this passage. And I realized that Paul would say to us today, much like to those in Philippi, you belong to a better kingdom. You have a different citizenship. Your king has way more power than those kings. Caesars come and Caesars go. Presidents come and presidents go. But your king, your king remains. Your king is the savior of the world. We're to fix our eyes on that day when Christ will return. We live in light of that day when we'll see him. That's where our hope is. That's why we can have joy. If you want to grow in between the bookends, Paul's saying, forget the past. Look to the future. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Let me ask you, what is in your past that you need to maybe you walked in with today and you need to leave behind? You just need to just set that down. You just need to stop beating yourself up about that. You need to remember and remind yourself what Jesus has done on your behalf. Perhaps for you, what part of the future do you need to keep in mind? Reminding yourself who it is you serve, where your passport actually resides. I'm going to take a second. I'm going to pray for us, and Darnisha is going to close us in a, in a small snippet of a song. But while I pray, I just want you to just take a moment, just there in your seat, and just talk with the Lord. And ask God to either help you set down what you've been carrying or to adjust your eyesight to what you need to focus in on. Will you pray with me? Father, we... 
come before you this morning. And again, Lord, I'm reminded of the song of we want to make room for you. And God, I know that in a room this size, a lot of us walked in feeling guilty or feeling down or uh, because of what we've done or because of what's happened to us. And it's become our focus. God, I, I ask that you would help us to set that down. To put our eyes back on you. To live in light of the fact that you are going to return. Lord, help us to be open to what it is you want to do in our lives. in your name, Jesus, pray these things. Amen. I'll make room for you to do whatever you want to to do whatever you want to Lord, I will make room walked in today and you had something heavy on your heart and you want someone to pray for you, we would love to do that. Uh, I'm going to be up here. There's going to be some people on the prayer team. There's, if you're in the back of the room and you want to go to the prayer room, uh, they would love to pray with you uh, so that we would have uh, 
the ability to focus our vision on Jesus. Go and have a blessed week.